invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 1 in the Scripture. Isaiah 1. If you're using a house Bible, I will tell you the page number in about 30 seconds. No, 5 seconds. Uh, It is page 566. Isaiah 1. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. You probably recognize those words as the words that open the session of the Supreme Court of the United States from the old French legal terminology. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. This is a call to solemn silence and sober attention for the proceedings that are about to take place. And in the vision of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord of all the universe holds court. And He calls upon the heavens and the earth to come and to hear all the creatures of the earth to hear His charges. He comes as marshal and judge and prosecutor. He calls upon heaven and earth to give solemn attention and serious, sober reflection to what He is about to say. And I'm telling you this morning that the Lord would have every one of us who hear these words echoing down through the ages to us, hearing from the Lord through His living, holy Word to speak to us now, to give sober attention and serious reflection and submissive reception to what He is about to say. God's just charges are about to be laid out in the heavenly courtroom. And His charges will uh, involve all of the nations, the peoples of the earth. But judgment should begin in the house of the Lord. And that's where this book starts. With God's pronouncement of His charges against those who are His people. Those of Judah and Jerusalem. And in this courtroom scene, God begins with the reading of the indictment. The indictment against His people, against the people who are called by His name. Verses 2-9. through Let's give attention to His charges. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. 
the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in the vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The Lord begins this with a direct address of His people. You see that in verse 2? Isaiah says this, The Lord has spoken. And again in verse 10, He begins it this way, Hear the word of the Lord. In verse 18, He says, Thus says the Lord. In verse 20, The mouth of the Lord has spoken. In verse 24, The Lord declares. God spoke through Isaiah to His people in a form of direct address to His people. And I wanted to take this moment just to sort of pull out from the text itself and remind us that not only is this text the Word of the Lord God Himself, but the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Or all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's the Bible's testimony to its own origin. Are we all willing to accept that? Are we? Are we willing to receive that this is the very breathed out Word of the Almighty Creator of the universe, the Sovereign Ruler and Lord of all? This book is none other than the Word of God. We talk about this as the doctrine of the Bible's inspiration. You could really, that's the word that's translated breathed out by God. You might say it's it's His expiration, although that has the wrong connotations. It is His breathing out, His speaking forth, His mind, His heart that comes to us into the, the, the prophets and the apostles as they wrote down these, these words of Holy Scripture. The word inspiration itself is related to the word for His Spirit. You even hear it there, inspiration. It has to do with His Spirit, which can also be translated as God's breath. The breath of God carries the Word of God. And there is an intimate relationship, isn't there, between Christ, who is the eternal Word of God, and the breath of God or the Spirit of God that carries that Word to us, and the Scriptures that are the breathed out Word of the Holy Spirit testifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would be a part of the new creation of God, then you must have God's Word sent forth saying, let there be life in you. And you must have the Spirit to breathe those words into you as He breathed the breath of God into the man who became a living soul. So receive the Word of God. Receive the very Word of God with 
meekness receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, I want to encourage you if you have been struggling with doubts about this, if you have been struggling with distrusting the word of God, I admonish you to receive it as it is in truth, the very word of God and not the word of the man. Or else to disregard it as the words of a liar. Because this one says, the Lord has spoken. Now, with that sort of preface, let us give attention to the words of the Lord. And after calling heaven and earth to bear witness, God's indictment of Israel begins with the formal charges in verse 2. Israel has rebelled against the God who has adopted her and reared her as his own child, brought him up, brought up Israel as his own son. Remember that Israel was from a family who were, according to Joshua 24, originally idolaters. And God called them out and God adopted them as His own children, revealed Himself unto them. Remember also that years later they ended up in slavery to a wicked, oppressive king, but God raised up a deliverer for them. He showed His mighty power to them. He shed blood to redeem them out of idolatry and out of out of servitude. And he said, Israel is my firstborn son. Out of Egypt I've called my son. And I had to pause to remember that many of us were called out of chasing after idols. Many of you, you or your parents or your grandparents were were called out of idolatry, out of chasing after other things, out of enslavement to sin and to self, to follow the Lord God, just as the people of Israel. But now, he says, I've, I've shown so much love and kindness to this son, but this son is turning his back on me. He's rebelling against me. He is taking for granted all that his father has done. All the pain and the heartache and the suffering and the love and the provision and the care that the father has lavished on his son. But like the prodigal son, Israel has rebelled against his father. What have you ever done for me? The child shouts bitterly in the face of the parent who has done nothing but love them and give himself for them. Few things in the world, I think, hurt as deeply, and some of you know this all too, all too well, but few things in the world hurt as deeply as an ungrateful and rebellious child who has taken and taken and taken all that their parents have given and then walked away with bitter accusations for all their parents' perceived flaws. This is the way that 
Israel was behaving toward their God who had called them, who had adopted them, who had loved them, provided, taken care of them. And honestly, it is the way that sometimes even those who come and hear the Word of God have treated the kindness of God toward them, the grace of God on their behalf, the patience of God in enduring long with their sinfulness. And they have walked away and rebelled and hardened their heart as if God has done for them nothing. Verse 3, he reminds them that even the dumb ox and the stubborn donkey know with a hand that feeds them. But the people that God has cared for have treated him like a stranger. They have reverted back to strangerhood. They have been estranged to their God. This was the essence of God's charge. Whatever, whatever Israel's other sins, and he's going to charge them with many sins, but at the root of it all is the abandonment of their father God. Their coldness, like that older son in the prodigal story who had no love for his father, no joy in what his father delighted in. As verse 4 says, the end of verse 4, they have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they are utterly estranged from God. But in the rest of the indictment, the Lord begins reasoning with these stubborn people. Look at verse 5. You just see how the Lord, He's laid out the charge, and now He begins to reason with them about their rebellion. Why, He says, why will you still be struck down? Already they had begun to feel God's chastening rod. And he said that they were a diseased body, right? The whole, from the head to toe, they had made themselves sick in their sin, and yet they persisted in it. Like the drug addict who goes back to his needle again and again, even though it's slowly killing him. Or like the woman who goes back to her ever-abusive boyfriend, rather than returning home to parents who love her. The people of Israel are destroying themselves. He says, why would you go and do this? Why would you continue? You can just hear the Lord reasoning with them. What's wrong with you that you would pursue this self-destructive life? And that's the way, honestly, that's the way sin blinds us, isn't it? I mean, it makes us not realize that we are destroying ourselves from the inside out in rebelling against this God who we think His rules are too harsh or His expectations too high. We end up going our own way and finding ultimately that we are only killing ourselves. It sucks us into its soul-destroying power. There is something unreasonable unreasoning about sin. They were a diseased body, he says. 
from head to toe, and they were a devastated country. He says that their cities had been burned with fire and overthrown by foreigners, and that's true. You know some of the history. Their towns were being decimated. He says, left like an empty worker's hut out in the fields after the harvest is done. Abandoned, empty. Verse 9, if the Lord of hosts had not left us with a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, which were utterly and completely destroyed. In describing Israel's situation, It may well have been a reference to the incursion uh, into Israel and and Judah by the great power of that day, the power of Assyria, that ancient civilization which which entered into the cities of northern the northern part of Israel, especially and down even to Jerusalem in in the seven hundreds, seven o one B.C. That that great period of trauma for the people of Israel is what dominates really the first half of this book. They watched Sennacherib march his army south through Israel, destroying and burning city after city, and their extended family members, and their loved ones, and their fellow people being killed and burned and taken away as captives. They heard reports that made parents sit up at night and weep and weep for an uncle that was lost and all of his family and all of his children. And all of this is was the judgment of the Almighty God upon Israel, on Judah, like the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I want to remind you that the fire that came down from heaven and destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, those ancient cities, was a, biblically, it was a foretaste of the judgment, the fiery judgment of God, which is described in the Scriptures as a lake that burns with fire and sulfur This is the second death. This is the eternal judgment of the Almighty, the righteous display of His justice against all evil in the world. So this, I mean, this ancient history is going to repeat itself. And part of the purpose of God's recording it for us is that we might flee from the wrath to come and that we might be delivered by the mercy and the kindness of a God who receives penitent sons back to himself. Now verse 10 begins a new section. And I want you to notice the first words here. Does that sound familiar? Hear the word of the Lord and give ear to the teaching of our God. These are the same exact terms that began the first section up in verse 2. 
And notice also that this section in verse 10 begins the same way the last section ends. So there's sort of a hinge that ties them together. That is a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. But in this second section, God now turns from laying out the indictment to making an appeal to his people. Even yet, he will plead with them to turn from their wicked ways. This is amazing grace. This is unparalleled kindness from the hand of God with all of His patient appeals toward rebellious people who turn their backs on Him and take for granted all that He has done for them. Even now, He calls to them. And and through this... Through this ancient text, the Lord may be calling you this morning to repent, even yet at this stage where judgment hangs over your head, God's calling you to repent, to hear His voice, to turn from your sin, to come to Him, and to be restored. Even as you are rebelling, He says, turn, why do you go on? Why do you insist on destroying your life? Listen to me now. This, I, I ask you to receive this, not as the words of some, uh, some feeble pastor or the, the words of a, just simply an ancient text, but to receive and hear these as the Word of your God calling to you today, appealing to you as He appealed to the ancient people. Come. Let us reason together. Leave your sins behind. I wonder how many appeals that God's people, those who are ostensibly God's people anyway, have ignored. And like the ground that gets so much rain, and ought to produce a good, strong, healthy crop, and yet they show no sign that that blessing from God has penetrated the hardness of their hearts. Let it not be so for anyone who hears this sermon today. Whether you're sitting here, or whether you're watching, or whether you are listening, Some day down the road, whoever you are, I appeal to you. I appeal to you to hear the gracious appeal of a father who is yet willing to forgive. And in verses 10 to 15, he appeals to them to forsake their vain repetitions, their Empty religion. Verse number 10, take a look. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He calls the rulers of Israel as if they are Sodom. Hear, give ear, he says, to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. 
When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you may make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. God's people, God's people had become like Sodom and Gomorrah, openly sinful without any shame or any remorse. And God forbid that any of us should ever come to that point in our, in our lives. These people apparently had open sin without any shame or remorse. As Isaiah will go on to say in chapter 3, verse 9, they do, they, the, the look on their faces, he says, bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. That's the attitude. In other words, it wasn't just that these people were struggling with sin and falling and saying, oh Lord, what is wrong with me? Oh, draw me back to you. These were people who were living in sin and they were unashamed. This is what they were going to do. And yet, even in the midst of that, they were continuing to observe their religious forms and the ceremonies that they had been given by the Lord. But in light of their the real state of their hearts, the Lord says that their sacrifices, their offerings, their incense is an abomination. That their appearing in the temple courts was just so much trampling of His house. That the feasts and the Sabbath assemblies and are for God a hateful burden. The prayers of with their uplifted hands, he will not hear them. And I know from sad experience that there are people who come to church and quote-unquote worship on Sunday, and then the rest of the week they live in open, unrepentant rebellion against God. And all that person's prayers, if, if, this, is, if this is true for them, It is true now that all of that person's prayers are worthless until he submits to the God that he prays to. No zeal in soul winning, no giftedness in teaching, no amount of financial contributions to those who are in need can ever change that. No religious performance without a heart of repentance and faith has any benefit. There is only one sacrifice that God was looking for from these people. One sacrifice that the Lord will not despise. A broken and a contrite heart. That's what they should have brought to the offering. That's what they should have brought to the temple. And now in verses 16 and 20, 16 through 20, He appeals to them not only to, to forsake their vain religious repetitions, but to be cleansed from their sins. 
Verse number 16. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God exhorts those who name His name to repent of their sin. Their sins against Him and their sins against others. Their oppressing of the vulnerable, the fatherless, the widow, those without power. Their acts of injustice have left the blood of these vulnerable people on their hands. And the Lord admonishes them, turn from these sins. And in the midst of this appeal, he makes an amazing promise of mercy and grace for the penitent. He says to these unreasoning people, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Oh, what a precious text, isn't it? I have no doubt that this text has been blessed in the mercy of God for the saving of many, many souls. And I admonish you to hear it this morning and to receive it again afresh and anew, friend, from the mouth of the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet stains upon your soul, the Lord can wash clean and make you white as new fallen snow. This is full and free pardon. This is a new beginning. This is a, a forgiveness of all that the, those acts of rebellion. This is grace so free. But this grace is not cheap. It was a costly grace. For God's justice demands that every sin be paid for, right? And that payment was ultimately made not by the Lamb that took the place of the death of the firstborn Israel when they left Egypt, but the Lamb, but the blood of the Lamb of God, the firstborn, only begotten Son of God, who took the place of guilty sinners on the cross, who died and shed His blood and suffered the wrath and the justice of God so that sinners like you and like me, could be forgiven, delivered, made right, reconciled with the God that we had rebelled against and sinned against. Dark is the stain that I cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you may be today. This is the word of the Lord, amazing word of the Lord to Israel. Yet at this point in their idolatry and their rebellion and their sin and their oppression and their uh, harming of others all around them, even yet he says, come to me and you 
will be made clean. I have the power to cleanse even the most stubborn sin stains. But there is also the necessity of making a choice to return to God. In verse 19, he says to them that those who are repentant will live in God's land and eat God's bounty. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. But in verse 20, those who persist in their rebellion, those who reject His appeals, they will be eaten. That is, they will be consumed by the wrath of God. And I want to remind you, friends, that there is a choice that every one of us has to make, even this morning. We cannot walk out of here the same. You cannot leave. You need to, you must make a conscious decision. Either you will persist in your sin and bring the self-destruction that sin inevitably brings and the ultimate destruction of the God who judges justly, or you will surrender to that God, return to Him, and be washed and be made new, but you cannot leave neutral. You hear that? You have, you have sat under the sound of the Word of the Lord today, and you will be accountable. I charge you, and I charge myself not to walk out of here persistent in our sin, but submitted to the God who is full of grace and compassion for those who humble themselves. I plead with you, yield to Him, trust Him, call upon Him, ask Him for His forgiveness, and you will be cleansed. The final section of this opening chapter here, um, it's linked together with the second section that we just looked at by the similar endings. Both of them ending the same way, emphasizing the starkness of the choice that every person has to make to persist in sin or to repent and come to God. And the differing responses to that choice are pictured in this last section now, beginning in verse 21, as two different cities. There is Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem, and there is the new Jerusalem. There is the rebellious city, and there is the submissive, trusting city. There is adulterous Jerusalem, and there is faithful Jerusalem, the faithful city. You could call this section a tale of two cities. Verse 21 through 26. How the faithful city has become a whore. And just watch the downward progression. There's a, there's a kind of a beautiful chiastic symmetry to this. They go, there's a downward progression and then a mirroring upward progression. He says, verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. She ha- who was full, who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. 
Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy and I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. What was supposed to be the city of God, the city of Jerusalem, had acted like a whore, prostituting herself with all of the other so-called gods of the world. And turning against God inevitably brings sins against men who are made in God's image. That's the truth. And when they rebelled against God and they left God, you begin to see other things coming out of that. There were murders that were happening in their midst, thefts, bribery to create injustice, oppression of the powerless, all of these things taking place all across that ancient nation. And God declared that He would bring His chastening on them. And His chastening came in the form of ruthless armies and the death of many of them and years and years of captivity. But what's here amazing is that this chastening of God is meant to have actually a dual effect. Did you notice it in the text? You have all of this judgment of God, but then when you get to the bottom here, there's kind of a turn, a pivot, and God begins to predict something amazing. God's chastening is intended to have a dual effect. On the one hand, as verse 24, it is His vengeance upon those who persist in rebellion. And the Bible makes it very clear, friends. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I what? I will repay. Don't make any mistake about it. God's not just going to let sin go on forever. Those who persist in rebellion will be ultimately consumed by the wrath of God. That's verse 24. But then verses 25 and 26, that same judgment would have a purifying effect on the rest of the people. That is, the people who truly were brought low and in their lowness they looked to God. It would become like a refiner's fire making them more pure, more holy, removing the ungodly from their midst. God's judgment would be like that chemical scrubbing that removed the stain upon the nation, like the fiery smelting of the ore that removed the dross so that what came out in the end would be pure and holy. And the fires of God's judgment will either refine you or remove you from the city of God's great blessing. That is the truth. You will either be purified by God's refining fires now 
or you will be eternally destroyed by the fires of His judgment one day. Either you will receive His chastening hand, His disciplining hand now, and prove to be His Son, or you will be eternally punished under the rod of His wrath. That's the only two options. There are two cities. Which one are you a part of? He ends this section with the same stark contrast with which he ended that second section. Verse 27 to 31. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners will be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and they shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together, and none to quench them. Those who repent, Those who repent will be redeemed, he says, will be delivered. But those who continue to rebel and forsake God and sin will be destroyed. And no gods will be able to help them. The gods that they looked to, the things that they hoped in, would give them deliverance and joy and blessing. Those things will prove to be Empty and futile. This is the reference in verse 29 to the oaks that they trusted in and the gardens that they enjoyed. This is almost surely a part of a kind of fertility cult that just plagued the people of Israel as they made these Asherah, these gods that they worshipped and hoped in, just like all the pagan peoples around them. God says, you stand there and worship this oak tree, you will become a withered oak. You, you worship the gods in, the, in their gardens and, and hope for his, their blessings on your land to be fruitful and fertile, but you will be like a dry, waterless garden. Those who make those idols will become just like them and ultimately the fires of God's judgment will burn up that stubble just like so many twigs, so much kindling. As Jesus Himself said, those who are not abiding in Me are good for nothing. They're dry stumps that get gathered up and cast into the fire and burn. And that is what God is warning these people who name His name. He's warning them of His judgment to come that will bring everlasting punishment upon them. But on the other hand, He says that those who hope in Him will become purified. Friend, I don't know about you. Am I talking to somebody this morning, who is in danger already of becoming a dried up branch, detached from the Lord Jesus Christ, who has cut yourself off, as it were, 
from the saving grace of God by your own persistence in rebellion? Why would you go on that way? What good will that do you? Why would you still go on and suffer the wrath of God before you today is a choice? And on the one hand, if if you walk out and, and persist in sinning unrepentantly against your God, it could be that this is the last time the rains fall upon you. And now the ground will just become a scorched earth. But if, and I want to hold this out to you, with all the glory and the blessing I can, if you will say, Lord, my sins are great. They are strong. The stain of sin upon me seems indelible. But I come to you. I turn from my sin. I ask you to save me. And He says to us, though your sins are as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. You'll be washed and cleansed thoroughly and completely. I mean, we're talking about a miraculous cleansing. One thing you can't do is ignore the choice that's before you. Like Elijah said to the people, How long do you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, serve Him. If Baal is God, then serve Him. And I ask you to put God to the test to see and to prove that His grace, His mercy is sufficient to wash away the darkest stain of sin. Throughout the history of God's true people, they have found again and again that His mercy is sufficient to wash away sin and to make them white as snow. Augustine found that God's mercy was sufficient to wash away His vile and wicked lifestyle. Luther found that God's mercy was sufficient to wash clean his ungodly self-righteousness. Wesley, whose hymn we sang earlier, found that God's mercy was sufficient to cover a thousand falls. Though your sins are as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. You can be cleaned. Come, the Lord says to you this morning. Come. Though they are red like crimson, they may be made like wool. Would you bow? Continue to listen to the voice of the Lord this morning. As the pianist begins to play a hymn, we're going to take this time to just pray. Confess 
and plead with God for mercy. And wherever you are in your spiritual state, whatever situation you're in, the promise of God holds true that if you would repent, He would be gracious.